Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Runari's podcast. As always, it's Timmy and today my co-host is actually James for once. So today we have a very special guest. His name is Josh Connolly. He's from Swindon in England. Josh is um, a coach, a resilience coach. Um, he's in recovery, um, amongst other things. You're also an ambassador for the National Association for Children of Alcoholics, mm-hmm. you know, and I'd say there's a pile of more stuff and we'll let you get to all that. So if you just want to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and, and how you got into your, this work that you're in at the moment with the coaching and everything else. Yeah. Okay. So I've been doing the coaching now sort of full time for, I think around about four years. And I think that came uh, as part of like my recovery journey. It was sort of like, it felt like the next step really in terms of, you know, the the passion and the fire that was ignited in me when I sort of found the change in my life to, to, to kind of share my, my learnings. Um, I, I say I'm a resilience coach. So I work with like individuals and organizations around the world, actually, um, getting them to look at resilience in what I would call a new way, a way that kind of breaks down some of the old ideas uh, of what I thought resilience was. My old idea of it ultimately nearly killed me. Um, I, I nearly took my own life in my sobriety. I know a lot of people say, you know, there's the saying that your worst days in your recovery are still better than your better best days in your drinking or whatever that's just not true for me. I've had some desperately difficult times in my recovery, just as difficult as the times when I was drinking. And so a lot of that was born through the belief that I need to keep going, right? That I'm supposed to have it all together. And that ultimately I always believed that the goal was to feel good. And I think there's a little bit of a problem actually in the kind of mental health space, if you want to call it that, where there's this new, this belief now that if you're struggling emotionally in any way, then we sort of, we, we call it a mental health problem, right? And we, we've sort of, I, I believe in a lot of ways, over-medicalized natural human emotion. And so the resilience that I, that, that I try and teach is based around coming back to ourselves really with the understanding that actually we're supposed to feel a range of emotions and I'd go so far as to say the belief that I should feel good all of the time was pretty much exactly what drove my addiction, right? That is addiction. Yeah. The belief that I shouldn't feel difficult emotions. Uh, and so the one thing that's been true for me in the last nine years since I put down sort of substances, alcohol and drugs, is that I've had a million and one different addictions. A million and one different ways to escape the ways that I feel, yeah? And I'm always finding new inventive ways that society doesn't call me out on because they're much easier to hide behind. So, so, so that's kind of the work that I do is it, it, centered around coming back to ourselves and allowing ourselves to, to, to understand and be with our emotions a lot more. Mm-hmm. And how, how did, how did all that come to an end, Josh? You know, um, was, was it just complete? We're, we're using for many years. Um, and did, did something in, in your life just kind of say, I can't do this anymore. Or was it uh, an incident? Uh, an incident that happened? You know, it was like a se- it was like a series of events, right? I'd like to take full responsibility for it, right, and say that it was just like, you know, down to how much I wanted it. And I think I used to kind of sell that idea, but the more that I look at it, listen, I've lost friends who wanted to get sober just as much as I did. All right, they, they, and they tried as hard as I did, and they're gone. They're not here anymore. 
So I think it's naive of me to say that I wanted it enough. My truth is, is that in the end, I sort of recognized that drinking drugs wasn't working. Mm-hmm. And it used to for me when I was younger. It might, certainly might, I started drinking, I started smoking weed when I was like 12, drink when I was 13 and then class A's quickly followed, right? And I got to tell you, between the age of 12 and 16, at least, I loved every single minute of it, right? When I, when I was using it, because it did everything I ever wanted it to do, right? I know, you know, we often sort of sell the idea that we say, was we ever really enjoying it? I was. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, my life got good when I was 13, when I started using drugs, right? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't like fully hooked on them then, right? Um, but my first daughter was born when I was 18. By the time I was 24, I had four children with my now ex-wife. And the drink had stopped working. Like I felt miserable when I was drunk and I felt miserable when I was sober. People say you have to want to do it for yourself. I'm telling you that on the 14th of May, 2012, when I woke up with my last hangover, I did not stop drinking for myself. I did it because I had kids. And anybody that gets sober, who's like, I don't know, single with no kids, I think of some of the most incredible people we know because I don't know if I would have. I got mm. I got sober for my I got sober because I had kids, and I didn't want to be like my dad to my kids. Um, eventually, somewhere in that, I found myself. It took me it took me to to plan my own suicide when I was about nine months sober, uh, and then I had an experience with my children that changed everything. Mm. Um, and I sort of say. Sorry, go on, go on, James. Sorry, do you know when you were in early recovery um, and nine months into recovery, you started planning your suicide? What, what, like, I, I've been in early recovery too and I can tell you the first few months sober is the hardest time you'll ever have in your life, do you know? What was it about that that got so overwhelming for you that you wanted to end your life? I think firstly, I didn't have alcohol and drugs to blame it on anymore. And I, and I still felt, I felt, I felt worse. At least when I drank, I could just, you know, I'd drink to blackout, right? And it, like, it would go away. I could lose myself for weekends. You know, I could, um, I could blame the fact that I did X, Y, or Z or whatever I did on the weekend, you know, destroyed my life in, in a million and one different ways. I could, I could blame it on alcohol and drugs. Mm. And here I was at like three or four months sober. I had like a period of like a month where it genuinely was like, brilliant yeah Mm. but then after that i was doing the same stuff and i wasn't drinking Mm. you know i was i was manipulating people in the same way really you know trying to get my needs met in ways that you know in in a million and one different ways and then secondly because because of all the emotions that come back the thing was is that everyone i knew that was doing recovery was talking about how brilliant it was right and if you talked about it being crap in the circles mm. that I was moving in, you weren't doing it right and you had to try harder. And so I just talked about it being brilliant all the time, yeah? So I was never talking about how I truly felt. And I always say it took me like, I don't know what it was, 12, 13 years to nearly drink myself to death. It took me not nearly nine months to sober myself to death. Mm. And I literally, you know, I, to be honest with you, it wasn't about the pain. It wasn't about wanting the pain to end. I'd always wanted the pain to end. I thought it was the best thing for my kids. I thought, look, I've tried everything. Because I'd have my kids on the weekends, yeah, when I was sober. And I, could, I, I hated it. Yeah. I hated it. I felt like I hated them. I couldn't, I could not deal with them, right? Yeah. Um, and so I thought I must be a terrible person. Yeah. Uh, but I sort of, you know, what happened was I went to see my kids to say goodbye. And my, my suicide was planned and ready to go. Um. And in that weekend, because I knew I was going to die, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent, right? And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way that I'd never experienced. And I changed my mind. Are you guys still there? Just give him a second. You're back. Just last, yeah, you're, yeah, back. Last you're back. Yeah. I don't know what happened there. You're I'd fine. say the internet connection probably just dropped for a moment or something like that. Yeah. All right. You're fine. You were just talking about you, you had a plan and then you went to see your kids. 
Yeah. And what basically what I was saying is because I knew I was going to die because I planned my suicide, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way I'd never experienced. Right. I remember cuddling my daughter and feeling it. And I thought to myself, like, this is what it's supposed to be like. I'd always known intellectually that I love my kids. Yeah. But the truth is at that stage of my life, when I was 24, my eldest was six. I'd never felt it. I'd never, I'd, I'd never felt any connection with anybody when I cuddled them. Not even my kids. And in that weekend, because, because everything was irrelevant, because I was going to die, I was present with them. Mm. And I changed That's- my mind. And I think the most important thing that came out of that is like, I thought if I can, if I can cre- recreate that feeling in me, life might actually be all right. And that's when I started then really starting to look inside myself and realized that what, what, what was killing me was this, you know, inside of me. Mm-hmm. And, and then that sent me on that journey really of exploring my emotions and what I would call my healing journey. That's when it really started. Yeah, I'm reading anyway. a, I'm reading a book at the moment. Actually, Timmy suggested it to me last week because my head was all over the gaff about some issues going on and whatever. Anyway, but the power of now by Eckhart Tolle. He, yeah. was talking, he was talking about the mind cannot exist when you focus on the moment, he says, and when you truly experience, experience that is when death is looming. He says, mm. because whatever whatever's in the future and whatever's in the past, that, that doesn't exist anymore. And all you have is the, the here and the now. And it's brilliant for you to be able to explain, because obviously I've never been in a situation yeah. where, like I've had a suicide attempt, Josh, but I didn't have that kind of, it was heavily under the influence, you know. It sounds like you had a lot of clarity around what you were doing and very coherent, you know. But it's brilliant for you to explain, like, how, you know, when you take your mind out of what's going to happen in the future or what happened in the past and you have the hair now, then you begin to see the value of your life and, you know, it gives mm. you a bit of a skill. Yeah. And you see that happens, by the way, like you guys are in recovery. Like, the, the, the most amazing moments for me is when I when I almost accidentally get lost in that moment, I might be like playing snakes and ladders with my, my daughter. Right. And for, for that split second, I'm completely in it. Right. And we're messing about. And then, and then you come around and you go, wow. Like for a moment I was, I was right here in it. I wasn't thinking about anything else. And listen, my truth is despite all the work that I do, those moments are fleeting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I, I only ever seem to accidentally get in them, you know, and, and they're some of the most amazing experiences of my recovery, without question. I can definitely relate to a lot of what, what you said about your, your kids, you know, because when when I started um, in my recovery journey, I had two kids as well and, and, and a partner as well. She's now my wife. Um, a lot of people do question how she stayed with me during the madness, but she did, thankfully. And together, we're, to now we're very, very happy, you know. But going back to what I was going to say, um, with the kids, right? Um, you, you you spoke about how you became aware, knowing that that was probably going to be your last moment spending with your kids, you know. Um, and uh, me on a personal level, meditation was the key to me really saving my life because that little bit of awareness that you got, I was able to create that through two and three hours a day just meditating because I had such a messed up head, right, um, in early recovery that I wanted to take my own life. I, I, I couldn't handle the pain. There was days that I, I, I spent early recovery, Josh, in prison um, and there was days while I was inside in the prison and I would be actually praying that my, my, my partner would ring me and say, do you know what? It's not working out. We'll forget about it. So I could go back using in the prison or, or, or drinking or whatever, you know. Um, but, you know, it didn't It didn't happen. And I started strengthening that awareness you spoke about with meditation on a daily basis. And I started separating myself from all those negative thought patterns from my childhood because I, all, I had a, a traumatic childhood as well, um, you know, where... Um, I, I wasn't really able to understand life too well when, when I put the drinking drugs down. As you pro- you know yourself, drinking drugs takes you away from all your emotions and feelings, but also your thinking. 
your thinking mm. that's connected to emotions and feelings, you know. Um, and I think your explanation of it there was was mind blowing because I'd said there's actually quite a few men and women can relate to su- what you exactly said, you know, that want to commit suicide and just having that little blessed moment with a child or, or, or a loved one and just said, you know what, I don't think this is for me, you know, so um, yeah, I, I just needed to jump in and just yeah. tell you and how, the, how, how much I thought of that. Yeah, no, it was brilliant. And another thing you mentioned there a while ago, Josh, around them, um, not all of the drug and alcohol use was doom and gloom. And I can, you know, I was smiling as you were talking, you know, because sometimes when I think back, some of the best memories I have are taking ecstasy with my friends and, you know, being partying. And, but do you think that for people like ourselves that grew up with some issues, um, do you think that a form of drug use, um, is a form of resilience. It may be the only coping skill you have available to you and you use that to help you get through that period of your life. Mm. You know, one of the things I've started saying, because I talk about my, my healing journey starting nine years ago when I stopped drinking alcohol, right? I changed my language to start saying my healing journey consciously started nine years ago. I believe my healing journey started when I was 12 years old when I spoke cannabis. That was the first time I started to look for things to help me deal with the ways that I felt. Yeah. I think it was, I think it's Russell Brand's book, one of his first ever books. And he said he spoke to a therapist very early on in his recovery. And she, and he told her that she, he started using drugs whenever he did. And she said, well done for keep finding a way to keep yourself alive. Mm. And I like that really resonates with me because that's what I was doing. Right. And, you know, people talk about falling into the wrong crowd and stuff like that. I was in gangs and stuff when I was like 12, 13. I didn't fall into anything. I went there. Mm. I found my people because the people in the gangs, yeah, were the same as me, abandoned in some way. Maybe not necessarily as, you know, drastically by an alcoholic parent, but they were abandoned in some way. And, you know, you you talk about resilience. What, What would I say makes a resilient teenager or a resilient child having meaning in their life? feeling like there's a purpose, feeling like I'm wanted and needed, feeling like I'm heading somewhere, feeling like people need me. You'll find that there's five I've just reeled off at the top of my head. You'll find all of those in a gang. Mm. Uh, and we exist in a, you know, we're going too deep. We exist in a society that ultimately doesn't, doesn't give people like me and, and, and people like yourselves the tools to be able to deal with because the ways that I reacted to what was going on doesn't fit, fit the system. And, and, you know, when I was throwing chairs about in classrooms, mm. it makes a lot of sense when, when you, when you look at my story and you start to understand, you know, I was diagnosed with a anxiety disorder. I'll tell you my anxiety disorder looked a lot less disordered when you look at the disordered environment in which it first existed in. Mm. Like it made sense for me to be anxious all of the time, to be in fight or flight. Of course it did, you know, and, 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 and my inability to be present made sense when I was led in bed at night and I could hear my mum and dad fighting. And I hear my mum say that, you know, you need to stop shouting. You're going to wake the boys up, she used to say. I don't want them to hear this. I don't want them to hear this. And listen, I'm four or five years old, squeezing my eyes tight as I can, trying to go to sleep. And my brain developed a way to tune me out. My brain developed a way for me to not be present. And and, and the, the, the problem is, is that doesn't serve me as an adult anymore, but it's, it's much harder to overcome. I do a lot of breath work, right? It's one of the ways I bring myself present. To be honest with you, if I could live my life just led on my back doing breathing exercises 24 seven, I don't feel like I'd ever have a problem, anything anywhere. Do you know what I mean? But I can't, <laughs> life happens. Uh, and so, so that's, you know, and that's when these things comes up. The trauma stuff from when I was a child plays out in my relationships. I can sit in front of you two now, talk about all my thoughts and feelings. Yeah. You put me in front of somebody I'm desperately seeking attachment from. I start saying I'm okay. Yeah, no, I'm fine. Brilliant. Got this stuff nailed down all because because when I'm seeking attachment, I abandon myself and just start trying to give that person what I think they want to hear, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's part of the kind of stuff that, I, you know, that comes from the things that I grew up with. Do you know, a few weeks ago, we spoke to Gabor Mate and he spoke, I think Timmy was, Timmy was talking to him about, um, sh- we were talking to him about shame, anxiety, fear, and all these emotions and negative feelings that we feel from childhood 
into our adulthood and we were asking him about how we cope with that and he said um, be be friendly to it mm-hmm. that helped you at a point in your life you know um, but now it's still there today but you don't need it today but just acknowledge it neither don't judge it it's neither good nor bad and, and thank you you know what you helped me when I was a child you helped that, that anxiety helped to keep me on edge you know when there was stuff going on at home and like what you were saying there your brain switched off to take away from the violence and the shouting in the home like it helped you at a certain point but it doesn't serve you in adulthood like you rightly said which we still have but it's just to be aware of it and not be driven by it um mm. yeah and i think like speaking about it in that way in the kind of gabor mate way is a lot less shaming than simply labeling it as some kind of disease that's like wrong with me a part of me that needs fixing right you know there's a lot now when i can refocus myself and say to myself i'm i'm no longer a defenseless child right i'm an adult i can use my intellect now i can use my strength i can use all those things yeah that i didn't have when i was a child and i developed those things and i think it's so important to look at all of that those parts of ourselves with compassion i don't know if you've ever heard of internal family systems by a guy called richard schwartz yeah that's similar stuff to that um that starts to rather than believing that we actually wore masks which is what i used to say actually we developed parts of ourself right that served a purpose and were there to try and protect me and actually that that brings in so much compassion because you know like you said about the drug use was that a form of resilience right it was an attempt it was an attempt at altering the way that i felt so that i could navigate the world in the way that i wanted to the same as the gangs, yeah? The same as when I sold drugs, right? The same as when I got involved in football violence when I was 17 years old. You can trace it all back to the same thing, right? That 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 that, that feeling that in and of myself, I'm not enough. And so I need to, to, to create attachment in those certain ways. And, and, and I was led by all of that stuff all of the time. And you're always going to be leaning towards people that are exactly the same as you because the energy within... The group is the same, you know. I, that's what I found when I started in secondary school. I leaned, like yourself, I leaned towards the gangs, the group of people that were exactly like me. They came from homes that were chaotic. There was a lot of violence and addiction and, and, and different things like that, you know. Um, and it just makes a lot of sense as well when you say it like that, you know. We fit into the group exactly the same as ourselves, and, and nobody dragged me into any group either. I walked in there with my hands opened because I got love off them. I got yeah. love that I wasn't getting everywhere else, you know. Um, I I think it's a great um, way of just explaining it, you know, how different people and kids move into different groups, you know, in, in, in their teenage years and stuff like that. What do you think, James? Yeah, no, it's... I think the only people who think that we went down a wrong path and got in with the wrong crowd are maybe our parents <laughs> say stuff like that, you know. <laughs> oh, my James wouldn't do anything like that if it wasn't for that across the road, you know. But, <laughs> yeah, James was at the ran. top of the group, like James was up yeah, the front, yeah. the one with the, the big stone, not the small stone, the big yeah. one. Every yeah. everybody, Everybody's mother is saying the same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know what, but like... You, that happens on 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 a on a societal level, right? Because if you look at like even the like we call it the county lines in England. I don't know if you say the same stuff like in Ireland, yeah. Yeah. But like everyone's like county lines. It's these big like these big things. They're employing these youngsters when they're young, and all of that stuff's true, right? But it's easier for us as a society to look at that stuff, right, yeah. than it is to go. Why are we raising so many kids in our own society under on our watch? That, that that feel like they want to go and use them gangs because if you grow up in a much less dysfunct you know a much more functional family environment where you're loved by at least one loving and nurturing adult who's able to be there and help you comprehend all of your emotions you won't go in the gangs so so the real solution is if as a society we start saying what are we doing to these kids yeah. because if you think about any other species of animals yeah if they all started killing themselves, if all if, if dogs all started running in front of cars purposely, right? You'd say, "What's who's raising these puppies? What environment is, is these dogs being raised in to do that?" Mm. 
And yet when as human beings, because as a society, we don't want to look at the fact that we don't invest in our children at all anymore, unless they're academic. Yeah. So then it's yeah, easier to blame the gangs. It's easier to, you know, tougher prison sentences, for example. Yeah. Everyone goes, yeah, brilliant. Tougher prison sentences. That's exactly what we need. It looks like a result. We can go 20,000 more people were in prison last year. That's 24,000 more criminals off the streets. But if you look at the correlation between parental imprisonment, right, and the children themselves going on to go into prison themselves, putting more people away in prison is actually perpetuating the problem. And so rather than saying, well done, we've got 20,000 more people in prison, why aren't we questioning why the hell we've created 20,000 more people that need to go to prison? Because mm-hmm. that's you, about com- what we do for yeah. children, you know? You made a, a great point there about uh, starting with the children. Um, I would be a, a really big believer in catching the problems and, and, and looking at how we can develop kids in a way that they can do things like, you know, be healthy adults when they get older. You know, for instance, say some kids are going home to a really toxic environment where there's a lot of drug drug and alcohol abuse at the home and there might be violence and neglect and all these different things. You know, but if they're going into a child a childcare facility or a play school uh, where there's really well people that understand how um, neglect and violence affect a child's brain you know if we have these people in these places and they know how to counteract these things that are going on at home with some love and teaching them nice behaviors you know i think there is where we need to be looking and you don't see the results of something like that for maybe 15 16 years when these teenagers they're teenagers not they're they're not two and three anymore now they're 16 and 17 and they're more relaxed because they were taught certain beliefs while they were in, in in play school and all these different things. I would be a, a big advocate um, towards that. You know, let's start looking at the bottom up, not trying to put work into teenagers that are 14, 15 and they're out of control and they have, they won't listen to nobody. You know, no, I don't mean not put work into them, but, why not put some more work into young kids when they're in, in schools like that, you know? When they're looking for that solution, yeah? Because listen, when I was 14 and I'm doing pills, yeah, you're competing <laughs> against pills. Yeah. yeah? yeah. And yeah. that ain't easy. Because you can come <laughs> in and tell me, you know, do this, do that, you're going to make, you know, do, and I'm thinking, mate, you want to try pills because yeah. everything you're saying, I get in an instant, yeah? And I say this to schools, they get me in for early prevention work, right? And I work with, they, they send me the kids that have all started using drugs. And I'm sitting down across the table from a, from a young lad who I know smoking weed, right? And I think, so I say to him, look, when you get to like 20 years old, it's going to really mess your life up. And he looks at me and thinks, I don't care about being 21 years old. Because I didn't care about being 21 years old. We need to work with kids when they're like six, seven, eight. Because mm. when I was six, seven, eight, I was crying out for something. You know, I was crying out for it. And when I didn't get it, I went and found, I went and found it myself, and that's when I found drugs. And so, what I didn't, you know, what what I didn't have in my my family environment that I lived in, my dad was 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 quite a violent, angry, chaotic man, and my mum was wrapped up in my dad's drinking. And so, I didn't have anybody to help me comprehend my, any of my emotions. So, so, so I didn't want my I didn't want to burden my mum with my sadness. I saw her sad. I watched my mum cry all the time when I was a kid. So I learned to keep my sadness in and make my mum laugh. And I never, I, I never learned how to be sad. I never learned that, you know, when you talk about sad stuff, it's all right to let emotion come out. I learned to push that down. And then I never learned how to be with my sadness, right? If I ever talked when I was a kid about, I don't know, being uh, like scared, I was, you know, you've got nothing to be scared of, Yeah. If I said, if I was upset, there was children over the other side of the world that had it way worse than me, yeah? If I was angry, don't you dare act like that in this house so you can get out. And so I found ways to not be with myself. Mm. And one of them ways was drugs and alcohol, and it worked so good. Yeah. It worked so good. Now, the kind of counter to that is if we could have more loving and nurturing adults available in school settings because teachers aren't that 
they're so busy academically. They don't get to be present with the kids. I, I thought about my drama teacher loads when I, when I wanted to die. Yeah. He used to ask me on, the reason he knew, you know, he saved my life on, in some occasions. Why? Cause on a Monday, even if I'd been a nightmare in his lesson the week before, he'd say, Josh, I remember you got beat one nil playing football last week. How did you get on this weekend? And at 12, 11, 12 years old, no, no other adult in my life was asking me that. No other adult was remembering about the week before. No other adult was like, you know, putting in boundaries, telling me when I behave badly that I can't behave like that. And then going back to treating me like a normal kid. Cause all the other teachers or a lot of them adultified me very quickly. Like I became like an adult who should, you know, shouldn't be doing the things that was, nobody looked at what, what am I trying to tell people here? You know what I mean? Cause I couldn't deal with the silence of a classroom. I was addicted to chaos. Of course I was. It's the environment. I, I remember going to a friend's house when I was like eight for the first time ever and walking in the dining room and the mum and dad had sat down having a cup of tea. And I remember looking around and thinking, what the hell is going on in here? Where I mean, was? like, whoa, what, something's going to go, is it going to go off? What's going on? Didn't It was alien to me. It was. I, I created chaos because that's what made me feel comfortable. Yeah. And yet every day I had to go and sit in silence in a classroom, normally at the front, it used to make me really paranoid because there's 30 people behind me, you know, and, and none of that was looked at when I was a child, you know? And so of course that perpetuated the shame, the system essentially brought more shame on me. Yeah. It confirmed well, in me what I believed that, that there's something wrong with me. Yeah. You mentioned earlier on there about, um, kind of negative outcomes for children of imprisoned parents. And you know, when I was a child and you know, I would have had a father in prison, um, um, when I went into secondary school, which would be high school, where in England, you know, the, the teenage years, you know, I would have had a lot of behavioural issues. I couldn't sit still. The anxiety you spoke about, um, lack of concentration, just a lot of behavioural issues. Even though I, 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 I academic ability, obvious academic ability, just not being able to apply myself for for a lot of reasons that weren't pointed out to me then. But at the time, the teachers label you as. Um, stupid, a tug, um, doesn't want to learn, bold, disruptive, all these. Um, but when you spoke there about, um, no wonder I was the way I was, you know, and I always look back and, you know, I have a great relationship with my father today and my mother, but I always look back just to try to get some understanding as to why it didn't work out for me in school, you know. And when I started studying criminology, I was reading about literature around children of who children of imprisoned parents and there's a lot of research to show like that yeah they do find a heart to sit still they do find a heart to concentrate they do find a heart to um you know just kind of you know just be that quiet pupil down the back of the class that says yes sir no sir three bags full sir you know but by the time people like me and there's loads of children like me in school today by the time they leave school they feel like they're stupid they feel like they're no good it kills the self-esteem but one thing you said there as well which kind of made me smile was um around that one teacher, you know, in the midst of all that case you had that one teacher. And I remember uh, around the time when my dad went to prison, I was in sixth class, which when you're about twelve years of age, you know, but I had been in hospital for about six weeks. I was in intensive care with a burst appendix and a lot of complications anyway, but um I was always big into Irish history. And I remember I went back to school after being out for about two months and my sixth class teacher, Mr O'Sullivan, um when I came into the class, he says, right, and today, lads, we're going to cover Irish history. And he kept it for me because he knew that was my favourite, you know what I mean? Mm. And it's just like one of those moments where you think, you know what, he actually remembered and he actually cared. But so, sadly, those teachers are very few and far between, would you think? I do, I, I do, yeah. Because, because look, I think a lot of teachers would love to be like that, right? But they, they, they're under so much pressure academically, they, they haven't got time. And then also, we like, as a child, I was hiding so much. I mean, mm. I, I used to go and visit my dad in prison, right? And and I remember I always felt like he was trying to get stuff out of me, with, right? Which he was, because he was in prison, right? And he was like, he, him and my mum had split up, but my mum had met my stepdad, right? Who she's still with now, incredible, amazing man. But I remember once saying that we'd been out for the day when we was visiting my dad, and he looked at me and he said, he said, where did you go? And I told him, and it was far away from where we lived. 
And he, I remember, I can remember it vividly. I must have been about six. He looked me straight in the eye. He said, how did you get there? And I said my stepdad's name. And my, this this was on a Sunday, day before school. My dad beat my mum up in the, in the visiting centre. Mm-hmm. Right? And what happened, we're, we're shuffled out of there. My mum doesn't know how to deal with that. She's an incredible woman, but she got no support. She doesn't know how to deal with that. So what does yeah. she do? Get in the car, squash it. It's nothing. Don't worry about it. We never talk about it again. Yeah. I'll go, I'll go to school the next day. I don't know how I'm acting, mm-hmm. but I didn't even, I was way into like recovery from drinking. I used to say, oh, he, he grabbed her by the hair and gave her a few kicks. Right. Cause I, I couldn't comprehend that experience. I hadn't mm. even digested it and, and like thought about the impact it had on me. And, you know, got my own kids and I started seeing my kids reach these ages. And I, my dad died when I was nine. And uh, I remember when my first daughter got to nine years old and I was, all this stuff was coming up for me. And it was because I used to say my dad died when I was nine and I don't really remember it. And then I was looking at my nine-year-old daughter thinking there's absolutely no way I don't remember it. Look at her. And it brought up all this emotion was coming out of me. And I had to do all that. I had to comprehend all of my emotions as an adult and find safe spaces to do it now, right? Because I never did it when I was a kid. Never had anyone to help me do it. Did you did you go to counselling sessions for, for something like that, Josh? Uh, what, how did you deal with all those um, emotions? And as an adult? Yeah. Uh, I tried a bit of therapy and I didn't, I couldn't really get on with it if I'm honest with you. I did a lot of 12 steps work originally at the beginning of my recovery. And I think the actual group side of it, of being around particularly other men, right. Mm. I've always had a real, uh, less so now, but in my early recovery, I struggled with men, right. Mm. I would, I could only be very bravadoed around them. Right. Mm. I never knew what it was like to have, a man care for you, right? Mm. I knew how to say, I've got your back if it goes off, let, I'll have it, right? Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. I knew how to do that, um, even though I was terrified of that kind of stuff. I didn't know how to be to care for another man and I didn't know how to have a man care for me. And I learned that probably in, in the rooms originally and I got rid of a lot of stuff in that way. And then when I found Nakoa, uh, which was like, I don't know, probably like six, seven years ago, I started having a lot of conversations with some of the people there. Um, and that was the first time people started to listen to me and not try and fix it. You know, like whenever I used to talk about my childhood, people would always wrap it up nicely for me. So, you know, I would say I felt let down by my dad or it was difficult. You know, I'm almost feel sometimes let down by my mum, Right. And I thought saying that stuff meant that I didn't love her fully. So I would never say it, but I, I didn't know that you can love somebody deeply but just feel a little bit hurt and let down by some of the things. And, but, but, you know, people would always say things like I made you who you are today. And, uh, you know, your mum did the best she could. And I know all of that. Right. But I needed, I needed people to just listen and hear all the difficult emotions. My problem was never the absence of gratitude or the absence of seeing the good in things. I had had no choice, but to do that all of my life. When my dad died, my mum, the incredible woman that she is thought despite everything, I don't want the kids to remember that my dad as being a bad person. So she only told us the good stuff. And whenever we brought up the bad stuff, she'd say, no, he he was a good man. He just drink got the better of him. Right. But so all of my life, what I've missed and not had is people holding space for me to talk about the difficult emotions. And that's kind of what I found in the co-op, the ability to say, you know, I, f- I feel like my, you know, I wonder if my dad ever loved, like, I wonder if my dad ever looked at me the way I look at my boys. I wonder if that weekend I had with my kids, right? I wonder if my dad ever had moments like that with me. And that's uncomfortable to say that, right? But often people struggle with that uncomfortableness. So they take those moments away from you and they wrap them up nicely. I needed people to let me be with that uncomfortableness to, to bring it out, to, to have the ability to, to ask questions. Um, you know, I stopped drinking for my kids, right? There will always be a part of me 
that wonders why my dad couldn't stop for me. Now, now, I can tie that up nicely for you and say, addiction is a terrible thing. You know, it, it, it got hold of him. He was a good man before. And I know all of that. And I know all of that intellectual stuff. And there'll always be a part of me that questions, why, why wasn't I enough? Right? And I used to think I need to change that. And actually what I've needed to do is become a little bit more comfortable with knowing that that's a lingering wound from what I experienced. You know, I know the intellectual stuff and there's always, there's pain there. And you know, there likely always will be to, to a degree. And that's okay. That's, 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 that's appropriate based on what I've experienced, you know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about NACOA? Is that like a self-help organization or? Well, uh, we are um, mainly a helpline, anonymous helpline that any child affected by a parent's drinking can call. So adults can call too, but 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 we get a lot of children as young as five years old ringing the helpline. Now, the helpline is anonymous. It won't show up on the phone bill. And one of the main beliefs that we have why the helpline is so important is because we, we believe that a child's access to support shouldn't be dependent upon their parents reaching some kind of recovery. Mm what you know there's services have always been available to a degree but it's if i go into recovery yeah then i might be able to get support for my kids but what happens if i never go into recovery what we found six years ago is that no constituents in england and wales zero had any plan whatsoever for a child affected by parents drinking mm. so we did a massive campaign and we changed that in four years it went up to we got it up to 75 percent of constituents now have a plan uh, for children affected by parents drinking. It was like we were on the front page of the papers in in England. I delivered a lecture at the House of Commons at the launch of the first ever manifesto. We managed to secure like 6.5 million funding for across England. For ch- It's just been cut, by the way, after that funding. But, but originally the funding was there um, because we talked about children of alcoholics like being the silent victim mm. because you know, what happens for a lot of these kids is even if the parent gets sober, I hear people in recovery say things like my recovery is more important than my children. Yeah. And I just think, yeah. I hope your kids never hear you say that. Yeah. Cause listen, I'll tell you something now I got, I got a, I got like young kids. I've got teenage kids as well, but my young kids. Yeah. If I ain't here, I ain't here. My kids don't care where I am. And if I am present with them, I can be here physically and not be present. My kids will know. And so my healing has to, my healing has to be with my children, particularly my children that, you know, my eldest was six when I quit drinking. That's a lot of brain development based on an environment that existed. And I I don't reflect on that morbidly, but I have to, I have to admit that she's going to be impacted by that. Mm. Uh, Otherwise I'm still running away. Mm. And that's hard. You know, my, my eldest, for example, has attachment struggles. There's no doubt about it. Has struggles, problems with attachment. That's because of the environment that she was brought into that I existed in. I either turn my eye to that or I say, listen, I've got to do the best I can for us all to try and heal together. You know? So I think, I think that's really important. And I think, you know, that's why I'm so passionate about the kind of work that we do with Nakoa because there's one in five children in England anyway, that are living with a parent that drinks too much. One in five. That's a lot. I'd say similar statistics here in Ireland. I'm not sure if there is an Irish equivalent of that organisation. I don't. I don't think there actually is, James. I've never heard of anything like that. A children's helpline for, you know, all we have here really is is childline really, and that's that's for all forms of abuse, you know. But like Nicole sounds like something should be in every country, mm. you know, like because. I can completely relate and understand how important it would be to have an, an organisation like that, a young child that can't see anywhere to go, anyone to turn to. But if they have somebody on the end of a phone, you know, that understands them, how does that work then, um, uh, Josh? Like if, if that child is really, really, it talks like it's been neglected or it's been abused, you know, emotionally, how... Do you have is the onus on you then to to get some get somebody to that house, a social worker or something like that? So we we have like safeguarding rules, yeah, but um, we we don't push for any identifying um, 
you know, we don't tell people they have to give us a name or anything like that. So if somebody rang up and they said, you know, I'm Josh Connolly and it, I don't know, my parents abusing me, right? Then, you know, and I live here, then of course with the safeguarding routines would be followed. Mm. There's like a fine line here though, because I always say when I was a kid, I would never have rang the helpline, mm. right? Because I was so like, that was the ultimate betrayal to my family, right? Because mm. of the way that we can idle together to keep the family secret subconsciously, right? But I don't think I would have been, I would never ever have rang it. We get lots of callers that ring and don't say anything. And then we'll have them and they'll say, I've rang 10 times and hung up because I'm so scared that you're going to trace who I am and come and get my mum and dad. So the one thing that I always say is we have to be really, really careful that um, helping a child does not become a trade-off of how much information they're willing to give us. Mm. Because if a child has to give us information about who they are, if they want to talk about the ways that they feel, we're going to miss so many of these kids. That's the truth. So, so we give them the opportunity to talk. Look, the truth is, is that, you know what? Most of them talk, they, they live with their parent being like they are every day. They ring up and they want to talk about the exam that they did well in at school today. You know, they want to talk about falling out with their friend who they've been friends with for ages. Normal conversations that every child deserves to have. We sometimes read bedtime stories to these kids. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. Because that, that's what they're missing. Yeah, I, listen, I, I did the training to become a helpline counselor. Uh, we've got loads of like online stuff. So we've got like message boards online. We do loads on social media. When I went to work on a helpline, we, you can e like people can email as well. And uh, I never answered the phone. I used to go there and think I'm going to answer it today. And I just thought it's going to be no good me being on the phone, right? Because I'd be just bawling my eyes out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I was like, let me read the emails, bawl my eyes out, and then reply to emails. And that's that's as far as I ever got in on the helpline. And then I went into an ambassador's role, and now I do a lot of, like, kind of awareness raising and, and other stuff. Uh, yeah, because... That's, that's like me watching, you know, there's ads back here, uh, Bernardo's ads, they throw them on the telly every once in a while for donations and... It's like every time I see that ad, I'm like this behind my wife crying, like because yeah. I feel the pain of that child. You know, the I, I I I I know exactly what what it's like to to feel exactly how that little boy or little girl feels caught up in these situations. You know, it's mm. it's very sad. Like, yeah, it's important to have boundaries with that stuff, right? Otherwise, I'd be running about trying to save the world and completely ignoring myself and my family and just thinking that I need to save every single child who I see in pain, you know? So I've got to be quite a bit careful with my boundaries on that stuff. Yeah. Excellent. So That's just the, the other thing, right. Um, sorry, James, I just, you do a lot of resilience coaching as well, Josh, you know, for, mm -hmm. for big companies and stuff. You know, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's very, very important. Your, 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 what you do for companies and and uh, for schools and just teaching kids what real resilience is and stuff like that. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so a lot of the like corporate work that I do, I've sort of rolled out a lot of my training globally with some with some big companies. Um, and and it's to be honest with you, it's been centered around the idea that I can't really tell you what's good for you. Right. Because I don't really know what's good for you. I barely know what's good for myself. Right. So, so true resilience really is about coming back to ourselves and understanding our struggles so that we can build the resources in our life to be able to deal with them. I'm sensitive, right? I get overwhelmed easily. I used to think that made me weak. It doesn't make me weak. Right. If I see my sensitivity for what it is and I build the things in my life to be able to deal with it, it's not a weakness. And so resilience is about our authenticity to, 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 to bring in Gabor Mate's definition, understanding what we're feeling, knowing what we need as a result, and then being able to communicate that. Right. So it's literally about teaching people to come back to themselves. Stop believing that you need to keep going. Stop believing that you need to keep moving forward all of the time. That's not resilience, right? That's, that's just blindly going towards your grave, right? Yeah. Come back to yourself. Know when you're struggling Find the resources. How much help and support do you need? You're allowed to have people around you. Resilience is not something where I need to be able to do this on my own, right? It's about knowing when I'm struggling. I always use the uh, the boxing analogy. You know, uh, Anthony Joshua, the heavyweight? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You remember when he beat Klitschko? 
Yeah. And everybody remembers in the, I think it was the 11th round, there was the famous uppercut and Klitschko's head looks like it's coming off of his shoulders. That's the famous photo that everybody remembers from that fight, right? And He was being, you know, he was, was getting beaten. He was getting beaten at that stage though, wasn't he? Exactly. This is the point. We remember that big punch because Anthony Joshua was the big heavyweight coming forward, right? But in round seven, Klitschko put him on his backside. And for two rounds, Anthony Joshua ran away. Now, that running away in boxing, we call it taking a round off, right? Mm. That's resilience. Mm. Because that's knowing I need to not get hit here because I'm going to get knocked out. So he took, he took two rounds off and he went on to win the fight. Now, you can take that a step further. He went on to fight Andy Ruiz afterwards, yeah? At the time, Wilder had just fought the night, I think it was like the week before, knocked someone out in like the second round. Anthony Joshua got put on his backside by Ruiz in the third round and thought to himself, I can't take a round off here because I'll get, I'll get Kane for it. So he kept coming forward and we all know what happened. He got beat. Mm-hmm. And so his resilience had gone because he believed he needed to keep coming forward. Right. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's true in life. The real tough guys. Yeah. If you want to call them that, they know who they are. They know, they know when they're overwhelmed, when they need to take time off. And, you know, I needed to learn a lot of that because from a very young age, I've always been desperate to be a man. You know, I went and got tattoos as quickly as I could. I used to shave my head because I wanted to look tough. I grew a beard as quickly as I could. That was only about three years ago. I think I eventually was able to grow a beard. But, but you know, like my, my, my general thinking all the time was always to try and be a man because internally I felt like the things that I struggled with weren't manly, right? You know, I didn't want to work on a building site. And I thought real men work on building sites because that's all I ever really grew up around. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know what I mean? But it's understanding that actually you be who you are, right? You don't have to be, you don't have to be anything other than who you are. And that's resilience. And then when I do it in schools, it's slightly different. And it's just getting introducing to young people to the idea that you're allowed to feel a range of emotions, right? You're allowed to struggle. That's, that's normal. The best people struggle. Uh, taking away the idea that there's positive and negative emotions and there's just emotions and they're all signals. And if we can come back to ourselves, then we've got more opportunities to be able to move through life without having to escape who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Without having to escape who we are as much, at least I think everybody does it at least a little bit. Yeah. You know what? One, one of my most favorite words is in, in recovery in life really is, Yours would be the resilience there, and I understand it. Mine would be surrender, surrender deeply into that moment right now where you usually in the past would have ran away from that feeling, but surrender into it and feel it, no matter how bad it is. It could be anything, shame, fear, guilt. That's where the healing is when you surrender and you accept it for what it is, you know, mm. and you're you're actually healing experiences that may have happened in your childhood or your teens and you mightn't even remember them mm. but you're healing that trapped emotion that's inside in your body you know um i think it's it's amazing your your work there with the, the kids and stuff and, and your your coaching is, is is absolutely fantastic myself yeah, and james will myself and james will have to get a few pointers off camera off you because uh we're go- we're thinking of going down that route and maybe um doing a bit of it i know james does a bit of it already but yeah, I'll have to find my little niche in it. I'll have to find something. Well, look, I'll give you, I'll give you a tip right now, right? Yeah. Resilience was a big buzzword when I got into this. Yeah. I took resilience and then I used that as a way of kind of bringing this healing work into the mainstream. Yeah. That's, a, you know, that's really what I've done. If we're being, if we're being really clear here, I've took resilience and I've, and I've brought in that surrender that you talk about. Yeah, and and I've bought some of this healing work that I think everybody needs to some degree, and I've bought it mainstream. That's that's really what I've done. So that is that's the idea is uh, taking some of the language that we might use in recovery and healing and all of that stuff, and then take what's how's that going to make sense in the corporate world? Yeah, so that that that's what I did with resilience, and that is why it's taken off in the way that it has. Mm-hmm. So many of my new clients that come to me, come to me saying, we've done loads of resilience training, right? But we're looking for somebody a little bit more human because it's all been a bit robotic. 
Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's so very pe- much stepped. Yeah, yeah, because people are ye- people are yearning for what you guys are talking about. People are yearning for what we're talking about on this podcast, right? But they don't even know it, and that's the problem. They don't even know it. They don't know it until they get it, yeah. and so that's kind of what I've been able to do with the resilient stuff is bring it to them behind the guise of, of resilience, really. But some of the stuff in your own life experience, isn't it, yeah. James? Yeah, exactly. And some of the stuff I would talk about is around um like a lot of the stuff a lot of the skills you develop in addiction and then recovery are very transferable in the corporate world. For example, resilience would be one, determination, um setting goals, like you have to you have to be able to plan to come from addiction and prison to go on to do good things with your life, you know, and work in organizations, be a manager or get a bachelor's degree or whatever. You have to make, you have to be dedicated. You have to work hard. You have to access support. You have to plan, have short-term goals, long-term goals. So that, that's the kind of, the, the kind of stuff I would kind of bring into the corporate world, you know, and, um, but I like that. Then if you're speaking in schools, then obviously it, it would be kind of different. Do you know what I mean? Cause it's a different audience. Everything is age appropriate. But I never go into schools thinking, um, you know, what comes into my mind, South Park, the drugs counsellor, drugs are bad, okay, drugs are bad. <laughs> like, kids don't want to hear that, you know what I mean? And it's the most natural thing in the world for a young person in their teens to want to experiment with something, you know. So it's just about how you can do that as safe as possible if you must do it, you know, and not pull the wool over children's eyes um, and scaremonger kids, because I don't believe that scaremongering kids stares them away from drugs you know if anything it makes them more curious to try because they're like well you use drugs for a lot of years and you look fine today do you know what i mean so you yeah. I don't believe that i don't believe you you know yeah and i remember as a kid being sat in lessons being taught about drugs thinking and they were telling me stuff and i was thinking i've done that before i come in here and and what you're telling me happens doesn't happen right yeah <laughs> so so you're lying to me so i don't believe anything that you say about drugs and actually some of the work that i do with the kids like some schools get me in to talk about like the gang stuff or like knife violence, knife crime and stuff. Mm. And then, so I've had schools, they come to me and they, they what they think I'm going to do is come in and try and scare them away from it. Right. And that I'm going to say, uh, you know, this, it'll be really bad. And it got so bad for me. This is how bad it got for me. Right. And I know that won't work. Cause when I was a kid, I thought I was Tony Montana. So I would have just thought you're doing it wrong. If someone like me had come in and said that. Right. Mm. So what I do is I take things like, uh, I, I do a session where I look at the main reasons given by young people why they carry a knife. And I think like the top four is like to, to, to gain respect, to want to be big, right. Uh, f- for protection. I can't remember the other one, but then I asked it, I asked the teenagers, I say, why might someone want to be big? And of course they all mess about at the beginning, but what you get to is why they might feel small. I go, all right, well, why might someone feel small? They go, well, cause nobody's ever really built them up. Okay. Okay. Good. So now we're starting to get towards yeah. why somebody might become vulnerable to getting involved in these things. Because mm. if we can address that, then there might be some hope. And what I do is I address it as how do you help your friend who's doing this? Because nobody wants to be in a session thinking, well, I'm carrying a knife and he's talking to me. So I go in and I say, let's talk to the friends. Yeah. And you do the same with respect. Why, 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 you know, why might someone want respect? Why they feel disrespected? Well, why might they feel disrespected? Why do you think they've never ever felt respected? And they're like, well, nobody's ever made them feel it. Who do you think should make them feel it? Their parents. All right. Okay. So, so maybe they've got a difficult home life. And then you get into that thing then where we start looking at these people with a bit more compassion rather than trying to scare them away. Because I could go in and say this happened and I was kidnapped when I was a kid and da da da. But I've got to tell you, when I was 14, that would have made me buzz my face off. I'd have been mm. like, I'm bang up for getting kidnapped for drugs, man. I'm bang <laughs> up for that. Like the, the scare tactics I try would have tried, to, I can try and give would have made me buzz when I was a kid. So that's why it doesn't work. Yeah. Cause it's almost like a, it's like you say, James, it becomes an advert for it, if anything. Yeah. yeah. So Josh, we're coming towards the end there, but have you got anything to promote anything exciting coming up? Are you working on any projects and how can people contact you or follow you? Yeah. Uh, so I've just become, uh, a certified breathwork practitioner actually. So doing like, uh, I don't know if you've ever done any conscious connected breathing. Um, it's inc- like incredible, right? It, seriously, it's like, it's transformed me, especially Timmy, if you like meditation and stuff, if mm. you do like this breathwork stuff, it's amazing. So, 
Uh, I'm going to be trying to bring that a little bit more to the mainstream in a way that's not too out there. Um, so, so people can watch out for that. Um, so it's but called conscious connection meditation. Conscious connected breathing is called. So essentially you're doing, you do breath work where you, you breathe into the body and then out, but there's no rest. So it's just, and you do that for about 20 minutes. You do it to music. And then after 20 minutes, when you let it go, I mean, you're tripping your face off. Oh, I don't want to exaggerate it. Massive DMT experience. Like. It, is, it is like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like that, but yeah. just literally through the breath. Um, so I want to kind of bring that, bring that to, to the, to, to the forefront and make it a little bit more accessible. Um, so yeah, but the best way, like my website's joshconnolly.co.uk and I'm josh underscore FFW on Instagram. And that's probably where I'm busiest if you want to come and find me. Excellent, excellent. Speaking of DMT, what you think of my sister's psychedelic flag in the background? It's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, love it, love it. I'm, I'm all for all of that stuff. Did you ever Listen. do ayahuasca, Josh? Sorry, have you done ayahuasca? I haven't. Right, and I have I, done it. You've done it. How did yeah. was it good? It will blow your mind, especially now that you're doing this, 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 um, this form of breathing exercises. Mm. You'll go into that, um, into the ayahuasca session, and you'll really, really benefit from it. Trust I, me on that, pal. Can I ask you, right, just very quickly, my worry, the only worry I have about doing it, right, is mm-hmm. every other drug I've ever done in my life that I loved, yeah, has made the rest of my life feel crap. As in, like, when I did pills, it was just like, Everything else, it just pales to insignificance. I just can't wait to do more pills, right? That's the same with weed, you know, cocaine, all of it. Why does that not happen with ayahuasca? Because it's it's so much different. It, I felt love for the first time during my ayahuasca session. I've yeah. done it for three nights, and I felt love for the first time in my life. I connected to the mother, the mother universe. I felt love. I cried for half of the night. I laughed for the other half. I cuddled myself for, for the other half of the night. The next, after the session, after the three days, right, I had a porridge on the third night for about four hours. I got sick and I could see my lower center, my first uh, energy center, right, being cleared, just cleared of all that negative energy from my, my childhood and my past, right, when I went home, that was two years ago. I haven't had the calling for the ayahuasca since. It will call you. I'm not finished with it because I know I only cleansed my lower center and halfway through my second center. You know, mm. I still have my second and third center to really clean before I get in here to the heart chakra and really just open up, you know. But I feel it happening naturally now as well at the moment. You know, I'm starting to open up a little bit more. But you will have to, particularly now if you're doing these breathing exercises, because they are critical in terms of going in there ready and and just surrendering completely into the experience. But it was the most profound experience that I've ever... It gave me more than... 10 years of psychotherapy in one night. Yeah, that, that's what everyone says to me. Have you ever done the toad? Have you done the toad yet? I've done the toad as well. Ah, see. I've done the toad. I got nothing off the toad, though, when i done it. I got nothing. I just got oh, a light you? DMT trip off it. Yeah. I, listen, I, I think, you know, when I feel ready, I probably will do it. But, Timmy, I've got to be honest with you. Even when you were saying, like, I've only done, like, my first, my, 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 my low chakra and I've got my middle and my top one. I was thinking I'd have split each of them into five. I've only done a fifth of my lower chakra. <laughs> I got to go back and do the the, the, the second. But, but when, when I could, when it was like in the second evening and the third evening, the second evening was where the first evening was where I got all this love and sadness in the one night. And I felt the sadness that I would have felt as a young child going through the the adversity that I was going through, you know. And mm. I felt that sadness and I was crying. And then I also felt the love. I felt the love that was I was born with. The love that I was, every human being was born with. I felt that. But 
on the second night when I was healing, I could feel this, see it, I could see this green energy just coming up through my legs past the first chakra and it went into the second one below your belly button and it kind of just, it went to a halt. It was like, do you know where ice is freezing? It Mm. was like it stopped because I just, it, it was after getting me to a certain place. I needed to go elsewhere like no, go back out to the life and learn some more and come back and start doing more work on that chakra and to heal that, you know. And I was happy with that and I surrendered into that and I accepted it. And I know I will go back, you know. And that was, Jesus, that was, I'd say, about 20 months ago now. It was Christmas. Was it, yeah. yeah. Um, did you go abroad? Did you go to Peru or anything or did you do it? No, I in went Ireland. to a place in, in Ireland, in Waterford, there was a place called uh, Inner Mastery. They facilitate a session, the ayahuasca sessions, but you can always, you can also do buffo down there, the, the frog, you can do combo, mm-hmm. you can die, you can do iboga, which is great for, 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 uh, for people that are on heroin for, for complete abstinence, you know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's a great, um, plant medicine for that. And they have other stuff as well. You know, um, but it's just, it's an amazing place, you know, it's just, it changes people's lives, people that really, really can't get beyond certain uh, states of being, Mm. you know, it really helped me in a massive way and I'm glad I've done this, you know, and and I will, no, it doesn't work out that way for everybody, Josh, you need Mm. to be ready for it in your own life and you need to know you're ready for it too, you know. Yeah, 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 no, I get that totally. Legend. Take care, guys. Cheers. Appreciate it. Bye. Ruby Frankie was known by millions as a very tough mom. That's exactly the way she wanted it. The social media star amassed a huge following of supporters and detractors alike, preaching the values of strict discipline. But you'll learn in a new podcast available exclusively on Wondery Plus how the small empire built by this momfluencer crumbled the moment her 12-year-old son escaped their home and called 911. Wondery and Law and & Crime bring you the new podcast, The Rise and Fall of Ruby Frankie, which explores the allegations of starvation, torture, and emotional abuse leveled against Frankie and her business partner, Jody Hildebrandt. Learn about the family's path to stardom, the depravity investigators uncovered inside the home, and hear in-depth analysis of the ongoing criminal trial. Listen to the rise and fall of Ruby Frankie exclusively and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.